Hello, Scream Demons, and welcome to the Screens from the Basement podcast with Sam and Casey. I am one of your co-hosts. I am Casey. Join with me, as always, is my co-host, my partner in crime, Sam Lenz. Sam, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great, man. Doing great. Looking forward to this episode. Uh, Yeah, this is going to be a fun one. This is going to be a really fun one. I'm going to introduce our guest in one second, but I'm going to spoil what Sam's thoughts are on this movie because, (laughs) full disclosure, this was Sam's first time watching the Hell House series. Uh, we're going to be talking with producer Joe Bandelli, who's joining us on this podcast. This was Sam's first time, and after he watched every movie, he's like, I'm never watching these again. I can't go to bed. <laughs> and I mean that in the best way possible. In the best way possible. <laughs> so let's introduce him. He is the producer of the Hell House series with their latest film, The Carmichael Manor, which is the origins, the an origin story for the Hell House LLC franchise. Joe Bandelli, welcome to the show, man. Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. And also, thank you, Sam, for now being potentially a new fan of the franchise. We appreciate you. Absolutely. Uh, Big fan. Um, Yeah, terrible night's sleep, but great movies. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like as long as I've known Sam, I've been been singing the praises of of the Hell House franchise. And now that Sam has watched them, I think... Sam, you can attest to to why I, I love this series so much. And Absolutely. Joe, Joe, we're so excited to talk with you about this this new one. But before we get to the new one, because this is uh, you know the Carmichael Manor Hell House LLC origins, it's a prequel to the, the the first three films that you guys made over on Shutter. I gotta ask, what's the origin story of the Hell House franchise behind the scenes? What's your connection to it? How did you get involved as a producer of the series, and how did how did this become, you know, now one of the biggest uh, found footage franchises? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, so the, I, I've, I've mentioned to people before about how I got involved with this. I got involved with it as a producer in a very different way than I think most producers. Usually a lot of producers will find a script and, you know, try to find a director or they'll meet um, a writer director, work work with them on their script and then start from from there and kind of figuring things out. I was fortunate on this one um, where I was introduced uh, to Stephen Cognetti um, and he had already written the script. So it wasn't a, it was, it was kind of like a little role reversal. It wasn't me looking for people to work on a script or to get the script made into a film. It was, he wrote something and he was looking for someone to help him bring it together and make it into a feature film. So, so a lot of that was really easy on my part because I didn't have to do much other than like it. Um, but when, when I did meet with Steve, he was in the process of transitioning the original script from a narrative film into a found footage film. And I, and I believe the reason why he made that transition, which was obviously the right way, the right call and the right way to go, um, was a financial decision. Um, couldn't get enough funding for a narrative film. Narrative films are usually a lot more expensive. Um, so he decided to go in the found footage uh, route. So basically my first job when I came in was sort of going through his script and figuring out, okay, like where, where are there elements of like, okay, this is still a little bit geared towards narrative. We need to make sense why the camera's on here. We need to work on this. And you guys are obviously, um, or at least you are Casey fans of the found footage French, uh, found footage genre. And I think that's with any, any franchise or any good found footage film, the more of them you make, the harder it becomes to be, you know, work in that world where it's realistic that these people are going to be recording and still use their camera. And I think 
even with this fourth one that we we just came out with, um, you know, there's elements, there's times when it's like, okay, realistically, someone probably wouldn't be filming during this time, but you kind of have to weigh the, weigh the pros and cons and sometimes a scary scene works just because they have their camera on. And, you know, I feel like once you build an audience the way we were able to build an audience, um, you get a lot of people, which again was another reason why I think going found footage was the right call for Steve being a first time filmmaker at the time. Um, because found footage, you can hide a lot of miscues and you can hide a lot of things that might look like you made a mistake or you didn't light it properly or you didn't do the right thing. Um, it covers a lot of those mistakes in the beginning um, because usually the more mistakes that you have, the more it looks like it's real and it's authentic. And, you know, a, a perfect example of that is if you guys have ever seen VHS, like the whole, like the whole piece that's tied together, uh, the one that Adam Wingard directed, um, there's parts in that whole sequence where it's like, you could have been like a five-year-old that just got a camera for the first time. And I don't mean that with respect. I mean it more as a, you can kind of do whatever you want to do and cut things together and put them wherever you want. And I think one of the benefits that Steve had with doing this was he didn't want to just go straight found footage. He wanted to have the document, uh, the documentary style added to it. So there was a form of narrative with it. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, how it kept going to, to the last part of your question, um, exactly what you guys just described at the top of this is, is how it keeps going. We made the movie in 2014. We got it distributed in 2015. And some people saw it and some people loved it and some people saw it and some people didn't like it. And then 2016 came and then 2017, we were working on the second movie. And, you know, we put the second movie out and then some people were like, oh, have you heard of this movie? And so on and so forth. And so now we're 10 years after we filmed the first one and we still have organic findings of people like you, Sam, who've never heard of the franchise and see it and are like, I got to see all these movies. And that's kind of it's it's really the the definition of a word of mouth movie. So we're extremely grateful to be a part of a podcast like this and, and speak with you guys on this because you're talking about it and you're bringing people on and, and discussing it. That's how our movie is continuously put into the mix and, and why people keep watching it. I think it's also good too. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, speaking, speaking to the, uh, the mixture of found footage and documentary style. Um, one of the things I love about this franchise is that it's not just straight up found footage um, that it is, in a faux documentary type of narrative um true crime to me is always like scarier than like horror movies mm -hmm. and so i feel like the 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 documentary style adds a little bit of that like true crime groundedness to everything even when stuff starts going crazy can you speak to finding the balance between the talking head stuff and the you know person with a camera scare sequence. Yeah. Absolutely. How do you guys find that? Yeah. So uh, one of the big inspirations I know Steve had when he wrote the original one was Lake Mungo and yeah. Lake Mungo does yeah. a phenomenal job of the docu style. Um, I, I think if no one told you it was a horror movie, it looks like it could be a real documentary. Like you mm. wouldn't, you wouldn't have no idea. So I think he was heavily inspired by that. And it's honestly, it's a fine balance. And I think for you guys who have seen all four of the films, you'll see there are things that we tried after the success of the first one. There are things we tried in the second one and didn't really work out that well. So then we tried to get the third one to go a little bit back closer to the first one and some things worked and some things didn't work. And then when we did the fourth one, 
In my opinion, the fourth one is the closest to the first one um, in terms of story and scares. Um, it's, it's, you know, unfortunately, sometimes you get a feeling, I think when we were making the fourth movie, we started on, it was one of the best set experiences I've ever had. And we started getting the feeling of, oh, this feels a lot like when we were making the first one. Um, so I think we had a little bit of a feeling of how it was going to be reviewed and, and, and what people were going to think about it. But sometimes you're kind of just taking a shot in the dark. I mean, filmmaking is always no matter if it's a found footage movie or a narrative movie, it's it's always experimental and, and you never really know if an audience is, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, there are some scares in the in the Hell House franchise that are repeats of other scares earlier in the franchise. And sometimes it works and sometimes people are like, that's that didn't work for me. Um, but luckily we we've been fortunate enough to continue to tell good stories and and work with really great cast and really great crew and people who are actually passionate about this. I think one of the reasons why the fourth one kind of stands out is we've been really blessed to work with a phenomenal cast in all four movies. Um, but this newer cast that we worked with in the fourth one, uh, the two girls that we worked with um, that played Margot and um, Vanessa, um, was it Vanessa? No, it wasn't Vanessa. Whatever. You guys know. <laughs> um, they, um, they are uh, Bridget and Destiny, uh, the two actresses that played them. They were so passionate about this. I mean, I, I'm not sure if you guys saw, but they actually created NetSleuths, which is the um, website that Margo's character runs. They actually created that oh, website and they so went cool. and filmed like so much stuff. Um, and the two of them and one of the other actresses, uh, Victoria, who plays uh, the older of the uh, Carmichael sisters, they went and filmed all of this stuff and all of these behind the scenes things. And then they came to Steve and I and were like, hey, uh, this is what we did. Are we OK to put this out there? And we were like, yeah, that's that's amazing. So I think we we were really blessed to get um, a cast that not only was like passionate about the film, but passionate about their characters, too. And, and I think that kind of is part of the reason why the, the fourth one separates itself a little bit. Yeah, that's yeah. one of the the big things that stands out in this series for me because, like you said, the second and third film are are pretty dang different than than the first movie, and then this one is closer to the first than those are, but also very different, especially in the setting. But one thing that really sets the franchise apart for me is the lore that everyone creates, and even going as far as your actors creating a website to go even further into their characters. Can you talk a little bit about about the lore and like? If you and, and you and Steven and all the other creative uh, forces behind this franchise, did you guys look back 10 years ago and were like, all right, here we go. This is the first movie. This is what we're setting up. Second, third, fourth movie, fifth movie. This is what's going to get paid off. Or are you guys just, hey, this? we're going to see where this story takes us and how we can tie things back together that way. So Steve is a big, a big breadcrumb guy when he's writing. So he puts a lot of breadcrumbs in for things that could play out or may never play out. I think, you know, one of the, the ongoing jokes between Steve and I is he kind of goes far and I'm the one that's always like pull it back a little bit or pull it back a little bit. It's, he, he refers to me as the logic police on our sets um, <laughs> because I'll always say that doesn't make sense. or That doesn't work. And, you know, sometimes his theory wins out and sometimes mine does. But it's a good collaboration because um, I think you know, with the breadcrumbs, he's, he puts a lot of them into the script. So when he sends a script to me, it usually has a lot of that stuff. I think one of the things that I was, that I brought to the table and that I think he appreciated was if he gave 20 breadcrumbs or 30 breadcrumbs in a movie, I would be like, pull it back to 10, pull it back to eight. Because one of the things that I always worry about is, you know, back way back in the early 2000s, whatever, I was a huge fan of Lost. 
and Lost was mm. like one of the biggest shows on television. And I think Lost, I enjoyed the ending, but the ending was very polarizing because they didn't answer a lot of the questions that people still had. And I think when you keep adding breadcrumbs and breadcrumbs and breadcrumbs, the positive side of it is you do get a lure. You do get this whole thing where the next movie that we make, if we make another one, could go in any different direction because we have so many threads to pull on. Um, but the downside is you do start getting into a territory where there may be, you know, an end to this at some point, whether it's with the fourth film, with the 10th film, with 10 series, like you never know. And, you know, one of the things that I know is that Steve and I are both very grateful for this franchise, but we're still in the, you know, he directed another feature that I produced for him called 825 Forest Road that's going to come out this year. I'm directing something else this year. He's looking to direct something else like you know, I, I think Hell House is always going to be that franchise that's kind of our backbone that we get to come back to. But we're, we're trying to grow as filmmakers. We're trying to grow and tell new stories. And if we ever do tell more stories in a different direction or whatever, you know, are we leaving the fans of the, hand, of the Hell House franchise left with like so many threads that we never answered questions to? Um, and it's tough. It's tough because, you know, that one of a filmmaker that I'm, I'm a huge fan of who, who actually had some really nice things to say about the fourth movie is Mike Flanagan. And he has a completely different approach for his. He always wants to answer every single question. So he wants his audiences to know. So I think he even did when he did the Midnight Club on Netflix, um, they got canceled after their first season. And then he went on Tumblr and literally said what the arcs were for the second season, what was going to happen to the characters, because he wants his, his audiences to feel satisfied. So it's a fine balance. Um, I think Steve really likes keeping those questions going. And I think that's what creates that mystery and that lore. Um, but we're always really trying to kind of find a good balance so that should we never have the opportunity to tell another story or make another film or make a show or a series or whatever, that we don't have people fe feeling un unsatisfied with where we left things off. That's awesome. So one of the, one of the, obviously the big thing with all of these movies is the setting, the building that they are in. And for this one, it's a little different. It's it's a house. It's a manor. Um, can you talk about finding the location of the Carmichael Manor? Um, and just yeah, what uh, what drew you to this house in particular? Because it's perfect for this movie. Yeah, I mean, look at it. So it, yeah. normally, I think when I first saw it, it's called Fern Hall is the place in uh, in Pennsylvania that we rented out for this. When I first saw the place, my immediate reaction was, "This is way too big." You know, and, and it's also, you, you know, there's a little bit of movie magic that's played on it because when you look at where the movie is and how it's filmed and how we're showing stuff, it looks like it's in the middle of nowhere. It's really on a very busy road. So, you know, there's there's like we're trying our hardest to shoot it at certain angles. So it looks like it's kind of out of the way and like, you know, miles to get to this place. But it's really right front and center. Like if you're driving down the road, you'll see it like right from the road. Um, I think, you know with the first this this was a big challenge because i think we found a couple houses originally and they fell through and and you know steve was scouting in pennsylvania and kind of trying to figure out where the next one was going to be um and the reason why i think it was a little bit of a difficult thing was when we first saw it um or at least when i first saw it the first thing i thought was this is way too big like they're never going to be able to explore this entire house and scope this entire house but you know with with a great crew and 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 people to kind of lock things up we never really, you know, we were able to use some story. We were able to use some things. So we never really had to explain like an example is you never see the kitchen in the movie at all. 
You see kind of a part of it when you're about to go up the stairs, but you never see the kitchen in the movie. And the reason why you never see the kitchen in the movie is because that kitchen was where all of our craft services and all of our food was for our crew the entire time. <laughs> we didn't want to go spend a half a day of moving everything to another room and then shooting them in the kitchen and then moving everything back. So, um, so you know, I, I think with low budget filmmaking and, and independent filmmaking, one of the things that we've been very lucky with is we found locations for all four of the Hell House movies. Obviously the first three movies were in the same place, but we've had locations that had larger elements to it where we could have holding for crew. We could have cast holding, we could have food, we can have those kinds of things. So I think that's part of the, that's part of the thing that we don't really talk about a lot because obviously people care more about the story and what they're actually seeing on screen, but it's really hard to put on a very low budget film um, and not have a place for your actors to stay, for your cat, for your crew to stay, for food, for a, you know, a break away from set. And that's why both houses that we use had those elements in them. And that's actually how we were able to keep the budget down while making these films. That's awesome. Yeah. I was going to say, that's one of the coolest things of, of the franchise again is, is the settings of these um, and how you guys use them to their, to their, to, to their full advantage. And again, I feel like this, the house, the Carmichael Manor of this movie will become like, like Hell House, uh, the haunted house attraction. Right. Another one, it's like, you go back to and you're like, you recognize that house. And you're like, no, scary shit went down in there. Right. Speaking well, of scary. Sh- I, was, go I was just going to say to you, the other thing that's interesting is, you know, when you're location scouting and you're looking for houses, um, sometimes you can get them at a pretty decent bargain for, you know, maybe it's a place that people don't rent out very often, or maybe it's too expensive. Um, and we're going to rent it for a decent amount of time. You know, I, I can, t- there's how many horror films are made a year. There's so many horror movies that are made. And I guarantee you every time someone rents out their place for a horror film, they're thinking, Oh, this might become a Halloween attraction. This might be something that people <laughs> like to come to. And it's almost never turns into that. But when you get lucky and you, you get fortunate, you know, I feel like both, um, owners of both properties probably have, you know, had some type of financial success from us making the movies there. Not from me. I'm never staying in either <laughs> one of these places. I mean, listen, listen. The, um, our our production designer, um, she um, she was the first one to the location, and she got let. Steve had the keys and let her in, and she was there for maybe three or four hours before uh, I got there with my wife, who was our set decorator. And we got there and she had every single light in the house on. And she was like, <laughs> it was like 1030 when we got there. And she said, yeah, it's a little creepy when you're in here by yourself. And we like walked the property at like midnight and kind of like walked through everything. And it was definitely one of those things that I think was a little scary when, you know, when there's 30 people there, it's fine. But when there's two yeah. or three, it's a little scary. <laughs> <laughs> the big house. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, that's one thing one thing you guys do so well is putting putting us as the audience into a setting where it's like I know I've been to a place like that before, so I know what these characters are going through. The one thing that you guys do that sets 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 you apart from real life stories is there's always a creepy ass clown wherever the characters go in this series. Let's talk about that a little bit because I, I'm I'm terrified of clowns, and this series does not do anything to help with that. Why why clowns? Why did you guys choose to? Hey, this is going to be kind of the face of the franchise. It's on the poster for the for the latest film. Why why clowns? So I think when we made the first movie, 
Um, Steve and I have both talked about this, but when we made the first movie, we were just trying to make something scary. So when we were doing the, um, you know, the guys going to a haunted house attraction or, or creating a haunted house attraction, a lot of the stuff that's used, a lot of the stuff they're playing with in those scenes, those are things that, you know, Angie, who owns the, the Waldorf Estate of Fear in Lehigh, Pennsylvania, those are things she uses in her actual haunt. So we had a ton of production value right there that we can kind of play with. So when we were doing certain scenes, like the, the best, the scene, and, and I'm, I, you guys might know this already, but the scene that like kind of pops out to me is when Paul's in his room and he wakes up and there's a little girl in the room with him. Um, we shot that with a little girl. We shot that with the clown. We shot that with so many different things to see which one's the scariest and which one plays well. Um, when we did the first one, it was, how do we make this scary? Which one's the better scare? Once we, the first one actually started getting some attraction or some eyes on it and people started looking at it. One of the things that we kept hearing about was, oh, the clown's terrifying. Like the clown is scary. So when we made the second one, Steve put a few more clown scenes in there and um, and I, I play the clown. So I was like, okay, I'm going to try to have some more fun with this. And like, <laughs> we, we kind of, you know, worked it up a little bit. And then um, the third one, same thing. We knew we were going back to the original format of what we were trying to do, coming to the place, putting on a show or putting on some type of attraction. So we put, you know, sprinkled the clown in there. And then basically after we finished the trilogy, um, we didn't know what was going to happen next. We, we've spoken about the fact that we wanted to do the Abaddon tapes, which was, was a prequel series um, that touched on a period piece in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and so on and so forth. Uh, we never wound up getting the budget for that. Um, so basically, we kind of had to go in a different direction. So that's why this film isn't really a prequel film. It has prequel elements to it. But when we were trying to figure out, okay, who do we play with here? it was really only two characters that kind of popped into our head that we can tell the story about. It was either going to be Andrew Tully or it was going to be clown. And Andrew Tully's story starts more in the seventies. Um, it's more of a period piece if we were going to go back and we really were kind of struggling with like the financial side of making things work for that. And I think if we did go that way, we'd have to go into much bigger set pieces. Um, the clown had just kind of luckily become a face of the franchise. So it made the most sense to kind of give the audience what they've wanted, which was more of that creepy ass clown. Uh-huh. And the best part about it was we were able to introduce a few more clowns that made it even creepier for everyone. Yeah. I, uh, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but the reveal of like them say them mentioning like, Oh, the two clown mannequins over there. And then the other person going, what are you talking about? There were three just bone chilling, man. I yeah. just, there were so many moments that I was watching this movie through my fingers. Um, yeah, for my yeah. money, Carmichael Money is there. Car Carmichael Manor is the scariest one in this franchise. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> we have to definitely give a lot of credit to our um, um, Bishop and Jasmine who run Blast from the Mask uh, Past, Blast from the Past Mask Company, um, mm -hmm. because basically when we made that first mask, um, that mask was definitely you know, we, we basically what happened was we paid to get a mask made when we got the mask. It definitely was not very good or, or very scary. So basically we wound up buying a mask that we similar to what they did with Halloween was we kind of had our, our special effects person take some notes from Steve and I and from Angie, our, uh, who was our production designer at the time. And we had kind of created the bloody eyes and kind of like the almost see no evil appeal to, um, to what the character was or what the character was supposed to be. Um, and then we used the same mask 
in the second film and we use the same mask in the third film. And overall that mask, you know, it, it has some years on it. And so we were kind of getting to the point where like, hey, if we make another movie and we lose this mask, like what are we gonna do? So we we found um, Bishop and Jasmine and they, they have, they're based out of Ohio and they are phenomenal. And they basically recreated the mask for us. Um, and so we, you know, we were able to start mass producing the mask and we started selling the mask as well. Uh, around Halloween time, we started selling the the main mask um, awesome. for people to kind of wear for Halloween or scare whoever they want to scare with. Yeah. But when we were going through that, um, Steve mentioned that he wrote two more clowns in it. And I think originally the plan was, let's just kind of do two random clowns, just have two random clowns with it. And when I was speaking with Bishop, uh, we started having conversations about, hey, like, should we make the masks fall in? Sorry, my cat's just like jumping up here. Hey. <laughs> We're, we're a cat friendly podcast. That's yeah, it's all good. Uh, yeah. yeah, I got too many of them. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's two. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, Bishop and I were talking, and he's like, "Hey, can we play with this? Can we have some fun with this?" And we ultimately decided to go in the direction of kind of like the speak no evil, see no evil, hear no evil, with blood coming out of the eyes, the ears, and the mouth for each of the characters. And then when Steve got the masks after Bishop and I finished kind of working through it, and him and his wife built them. Um, he was like, this is amazing and wrote more scenes into the film to put those clowns in there. And, yeah. you know, like obviously the poster and the trailer has the clown in there. So, you know, going into it that that clown's eventually going to be in the movie. But when you see those other clowns, you can see sort of the connection to like same type of material, same type of design, same, like it felt like they were all part of the same family and kind of helped the lore of who are these characters, where did they come from and, and, and so on and so forth, which again, it's, it's got elements of the prequel side of things. So you see basically a lot of what happens with Patrick, but it doesn't really answer who those clowns are or who they were beforehand and, and how it came to be part of what Patrick is. So there's still a lot more threads to pull on if we want to go down a uh, path of the, the clown backstory. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to follow up that with, with kind of one of my last two questions for you. What's, what's next for not only the hell house franchise, but what else are you working on? You mentioned that you are directing a film that's coming out, did you say later this year? Yeah, so so a couple things. So I'll, I'll touch on the Hell House one first because I feel like most people care more about that than they do about my personal career. Um, so so the good thing um, is we're, we're not really too sure. Um, we're kind of making up our minds to see what's going to happen next. I think the goal, we could go in one of two directions if we continue to do more films. Obviously, Steve and I would love to tell the Abaddon tapes um, backstory and do the actual prequel series. That's probably going to require a lot more money to do that. Again, because our set pieces are going to take place in the 70s, the 80s, and 90s. It's going to take place over the course of 40 or 50 years. And to do that and bring those things together and actually make it look real, we probably are going to have to have a higher budget, but also kind of have a little bit more of the split of narrative and found footage and not just have it all be found footage, um, which obviously costs more money. Um, so that's one element of it, but with the, the, um, you know, Hell House LLC origins, we can go on a number of different directions. I think we've talked about potentially doing a different story about a different origin for another person or another thing within the Hell House lore, um, or continuing with the clown and kind of doing a trilogy on the clown. So, um, we can go in a couple different directions. I think we're sort of still kind of figuring that out and trying to figure out mm -hmm. what's next. So, uh, no promises on what we may or may not do, but, um, 
but yeah, they're, they're, the talks are happening and we're starting to figure that out um, soon. Awesome. And then as for me, so um, so I'm, uh, I actually am putting out a film that's kind of like a mock on Cabin in the Woods movie. It's called Another Cabin in the Woods movie. Uh, that's going to come out. <laughs> yes. Uh, that, that's coming out probably in the next two or three months, possibly summertime. Um, so that's a movie that I wrote and directed that's coming out. And then I mentioned 825 Forest Road, which is another collaboration that Steve and I have that he directed and I produced um, with a couple other partners. And uh, that should be coming out hopefully around that same time. Um, so we have those two movies coming out. And then um, I, I'm working on a short film called The Sequence um, with Red End Productions. It's a phenomenal script uh, of this guy named uh, Brian Lapresino who wrote it. Um, and so him and I are working on that. And we're probably going to shop that in festivals probably towards the end of the summer. Uh, and then I have one or two other things that I can't really talk about, but we'll see. And those may that's or may awesome. not include Hell House. So. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. The, I mean, we're excited for for everything that you and Steve do. I mean, this yeah. is a, again a franchise that I've just fallen in love with, and uh, can't wait for for more from not only the franchise but what you guys are doing as well. So, I mean, keep us keep us in the loop on what you guys have coming out. And uh, yeah, if you get your short film done, we do run a film festival as well. If you'd like to yeah. have yeah. play it too, so definitely. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I say this all the time. But and I know I mentioned it at the beginning of this uh, conversation we had, we are so grateful for fans. We are so grateful for you guys. We're so grateful for anyone who talks about this kind of stuff. Obviously, we do realize that we have to be doing something right for people to be talking about this stuff. But again, you know, we're, we come from the low budget world. We come from the super, super independent world. Um, you know, we don't have millions of dollars to make these movies. We have to make them as scary as we possibly can with the budgets that we have. And we do our best with that. But we obviously can't do that unless there's people like you guys that are, are watching this and talking about this. So we appreciate you guys just as much as you appreciate us for making them. So thank you to you guys and 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 all of your viewers and fans for, for supporting us as well. Yeah, well, job well done on scaring us because, yeah. Uh, like I don't know. I know I keep going back to that well, but I did not sleep for like two <laughs> nights after watching this new one. It was, yeah. Joe, well, I, I, have, I, have, I have many more scary stories to tell that keep you awake at night. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to them. I look. Forward Joe, I have to one them. one more question before we let you go. Sure. It's the one I always leave everybody off with, no matter who we interview. I got to ask this question because we love our double features on this show. If mm -hmm. someone's gonna watch Hell House LLC Origins, the Carmichael Manor. Mm -hmm. and they're going to watch something right after. What would you suggest? And it cannot be another Hell House movie. That's going to say like a rom com to like lighten the mood. <laughs> lighten the mood, yes. Yeah, so that you aren't terrified. It could be like me, where right I just mainlined like three hours of Community afterwards. Right. I, I, got a, I got a good one. I got a good one. So I think so. I was fortunate enough. I directed the documentary about the making of the Paranormal Activity franchise. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's on Paramount Plus. If you haven't seen it, it was such an amazing experience to work on that because I got to meet and work with every single person who was a part of the entire paranormal activity franchise. Now, obviously for found footage fans, they say that, you know, the first ever one was cannibal Holocaust because it had elements of found footage in there. The first real found footage movie that was start to finish was UFO abduction. Um, but there's so many good found footage films out there. But to me, the original that kind of really kind of changed the game for people was Blair Witch. Yeah. And the one that really changed games and took what was scary about Blair Witch and put it in your home and made everyone scared was Paranormal Activity. So for me, Paranormal Activity lives up to the like, that's, you know, I, I'm a huge Nightmare on Elm Street fan. And I think 
what Wes Craven did with Dreams on taking what was scary from like Halloween and what John Carpenter did and put it in your home and your dream and your nightmares. I think Paranormal Activity did that uh, working off of Blair Witch. So for me, I would say if you really are immersing yourself in the genre, um, I'm going to give you three answers. I know you didn't ask for three answers, but I would say <laughs> I want them all. Yeah. Blair Witch and Paranormal Activity, one of the two. I would say Paranormal Activity. I feel like that's the superior film. Um, Paranormal Activity, because we're really fortunate, but like every year people come out with like top five, top 10 lists, scary movies, all this kind of stuff. And we're on these lists with people. And, and you know, we're, we're as shocked as some of you guys are when, when we see, you know, the scariest movies of all time and we're number three or we're number two. Like, I think a scientist did um this past year this past halloween did like a the 20 scariest movies ever based on like you know physiological reactions to things and we were like in the top 10 above paranormal activity and blair witch so i can believe it <laughs> what i would say is watch those movies because those are sort of the found footage like hall of fame so you know i would say watch them just to kind of see where we stack compared to you know all of them are low budget movies, but kind of see where we stack in that world. Um, so those would be the first things that I would say. Um, and then the last thing that I would say is, oh man, I can't remember the name of it. Maybe you guys know. There's a found footage movie that I watched last year. Um, it was kind of like a horror comedy found footage one. Um, it's it's about a YouTuber who kind of like offended. Deadstream? Deadstream. Deadstream. Yeah. yeah. I thought that movie was great. And I think- oh. I, I laughed my ass off throughout that entire movie. It was very predictable, but I, I giggled my ass off the entire movie. <laughs> and so I would say if you want to be scared, but also have a little bit of fun with it, watch Deadstream. Yeah. Yep. Oh God. Yeah. We, we're, we're both fans of Deadstream yeah. for sure. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I saw that girl on screen, when she popped into the house, I was like, that's, I was like, I, like I knew it right away. I was like, that's, you know what I mean? So that's why I say it was a little bit predictable, but it was terrifying at times, like really creepy and then just really funny. Like really funny. I, I remember my, my wife is super gullible and I remember asking her, I told her, cause when I got into filmmaking, I didn't want to necessarily make found footage movies. Paranormal activity was like the king of found footage movies to me. But I did. I wanted to only work in narrative, and it was you know the collaboration with Steve on that first one that I worked with on him. And then ever since, I was like, okay, we're doing this. I need to be you know a student of this. And then when I got a chance to direct the um, Unknown Dimension, I had to like I watched every single every single found footage movie that I could possibly think of um, to really understand the history and be able to tell a story about the history of found footage. Um, but I think a lot of times you know, people miss out on the comedy elements of things. And I'm a huge mm -hmm. horror comedy guy. Like, I think Chris Landon is probably the best yes. genre director in horror for, if not ever, for at least the present generation. And blending horror and comedy together is so fun. And at the end of the day, I mean, horror fans, we're a group of misfits. So if we can't have fun while people are getting killed, then what's the point, yeah. right? Exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're speaking our language. You're speaking our language. This I is awesome. It. I love it. <laughs> All right. Well, Joe, thank you again so much. Like this was this was so awesome. Uh, and again, keep us in in the loop on what you you and both you and uh, Steve got coming up uh, in the near future. And people, go watch Hell House LLC Origins, the Carmichael Manor on Shutter right now. I mean, we you're not going to fall asleep and that's okay. That's why you can watch the rest of the franchise just back to back to back to back. Uh, yeah. So Joe, thank you again so much. This was a blast. Thank you guys. I really appreciate it. Good luck on the show and, and keep me posted with what's going on with you guys. And I'll definitely touch base with you soon.
You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening.